Well met, dreamer, and welcome to Nocturne, the umbral planet of twilight tales and slumberant songs. Universes are often rather old, except for the young ones, which tend to be very loud instead. Younger universes are also much less predictable and often have a musky smell to them. If one wishes for a life where an apple falls to the ground on Monday, then on Wednesday, have a similar apple fall to the ground, catch fire, then burn a hole through the planet, then be my guest. Go make friends with a juvenile and reckless universe. For all that dare to live, it is much more preferable to be engulfed in the vast corporeal hug of an aged and experienced universe. For these old hands, down is always down and up is always up. Apples will always fall to the ground responsibly as long as someone takes the time to show them where that is. Yet, because of this consistency, these old universes are quite stubborn. Once they make up their rules, those rules will rarely change. In fact, should one have the intelligence and the audacity to surprise a universe, then expect a new rule to turn up, often alongside a black hole, and for the universe to pretend everything has worked that way all along. This is why physicists will always be able to write new books about how things really work. But old universes were young once. They have their scars from when they once let novelty and beauty supersede the rules. There is one universe in particular that comes to mind and that I wish to turn your attention to. A universe that turned a blind eye, ear, and nostril to a little planet called Nocturne. Like most mistakes, Nocturne lays hidden behind a veil of much more successful projects. One must pass through numerous galaxies with enchanting names and eye-catching features without a moment's distraction just to reach Nocturne. One could stop there, but Nocturne has an important story to tell. Oh look, we're here. When one looks upon Nocturne, two features are immediately noticeable. First is that the planet is a celestial knuckleball. It neither spins itself nor orbits around another. Instead, it sits motionless in space right next to a giant red sun. One side of Nocturne stares blindly into that fierce heat, while the dark side experiences a relative coolness thanks to its intransigent night. To be clear, if Nocturne could move, the first thing it would do is stretch briefly before moving to a much more sensible distance away from the sun. Yet, it can't, so it remains here. But this night side of Nocturne is somewhere life can live and thrive. And once life has eaten, slept, and listened to the morning news, life would go outside stare into an inkwell horizon filled with stars, nebula, and then Nocturne's second most notable feature, its multitude of waltzing moons. Lacking a collaborative sun, it is instead these moons that illuminate and illuminate Nocturne's eternal night. All of Nocturne's life exists in this tempered darkness, and the denizens of Nocturne know nothing different than a life orchestrated by these moons. They simply would not believe that, on other planets, people pilgrimage to the warmest parts of their world, lay on ceremonial beds, and willingly give their bodies to the sun, of all things. Instead, the moons that surround and sustain Nocturne are much more collaborative partners than their overbearing sun. Why, the water moon, Azalai, gives rise to the escalating droplets of the moonglade pool that drip upwards towards the sky, when Azulai reaches the nadir of its orbit. Similarly, 
Plentiful fungi on Nocturne are known to sway, grow, and even glow, depending on the motions of Kinox, the mycology moon. Without significant weather patterns and without a night and day to remark upon, the moons are the only neutral topic of conversation that everyone can get behind. And with more than 50 such major and minor moons, there are plenty to choose from. Yet, out of all these moons, one in particular dominates all others. That of the lunar matriarch, Saint Cecilia. This great moon sits patiently in the sky, never moving and always shining her great light down onto Nocturne. One cannot look upwards without her face and all her great craters taking up most of their view. She is a permanent presence and gifts all the light and heat life needs to get by. But Saint Cecilia also dominates the thoughts of Nevin, the priest of the Lavender Minster. It was close to midnight, not that this means too much on Nocturne, but midnights are universally understood to be inviting situations for ceremony. And as it was close to midnight, he was one of the many priests across many churches preparing the ritual of the lunar hymnal, Nocturne's ancient song that sustains all the moons since time immemorial. Nevin stood at the altar, his face framed by a warm light from the candelabras that lined the vaulted path all the way down to the entrance of the minster. Hundreds of pews for the congregation fanned outwards from the altar, covering the entirety of the minster. The altar itself lay below a grand octagonal tower that stretched up far beyond the cavernous vaulted ceilings. At the top of the octagonal tower, a grand circular window of stained glass depicting two large asteroids and the great moon, Saint Cecilia, transformed moonlight into shimmering shafts of blue and purple. These shafts fell all the way down the tower into a reflective chrome recess embedded into the floor. As the colored lights wafted and waved in the moonlight pool, Nevin stepped down from the altar and into this recessed pool. His face was serious and straight, emitting the confidence of one who has honed their craft through thousands of performances just like this. He breathed in, scenting the must of old prayer books and the stillness of the air, then spoke an introduction memorized over years of delivering the lunar hymnal. Welcome one and all, and thank you for your presence tonight. We are here to honor and enrich our lunar matriarch, Saint Cecilia, and give what little we can to her who blesses us with so much. A resigned smile crept onto his face as he gestured towards the collection plates in the first row of seats. We ask that you give what you can, so we may continue the great traditions of the Lavender Minster. Take solace in the hymnal, and may your peace echo beyond the moons. Now, voices are contrarian things. Without any thought at all, they often produce exactly what one wants, exactly how one wanted it, without one needing to want it that much in the first place. Yet if a thing is very important and time is taken to consider the best course of action, this is when voices produce their most tantrumic of noises. With singing, this behavior becomes even more risky. Thinking more can spark unhelpful thoughts such as, how does this piece begin again? When the voice knew how the piece started well enough before ever asking that question. It is therefore fortunate that experience led Nevin to rarely question what he was doing almost any time he opened his mouth. So, when the minor bell of the minster chimed, signaling true midnight, and rippled throughout the minster, Nevin took one full breath, closed his eyes, and then simply began the hymnal. The hall filled with song, and notes pinged from stone to stone, traveling up and down the minster, then settling gently wherever they lost their momentum. The air around Nevin glistened faintly. Small sprinklings of diamond-like dust flowed rhythmically with the ebb and flow of his voice. These sparkles flitted around the antechambers, flowed through the gaps in the limestone floor, and bubbled all the way up the octagonal tower and out into the night sky. Nevin let the final note of the hymnal ring out across the stones of the minster, and, 
when that note finally settled itself somewhere quiet, he opened his eyes and looked out towards the congregation. No remnants of that glistening remained, and no congregation was sat in the pews. He let out a familiar, worn-out sigh and looked up towards the glasswork above and St. Cecilia beyond. Holding back a lonely tear, he reclaimed the empty collection plates before heading home to sleep and to forget. On Nocturne, one can tell a lot about a person by their favourite moon. The responsible delight in Saint Cecilia with her stoic and reassuring presence in the night sky. Her light is enough to make the great forests grow and to light a path through their leafy darkness. She fills many hearts with determination. But then there are those who love a plan and sticking to that plan. For them, Chronoball, the metronome moon, is the lunar constant that they can and do set their watches by. It is also the source of much frustration as Chronoball is used to complain to others about their lack of timekeeping. This makes it one of the most disliked moons amongst the spontaneous and preoccupied on Nocturne. Most of the major moons have names known all across Nocturne, but many of their smaller ones have colloquial or even personal names. The twins, a pair of red and blue moons that rotate around one another, are one of the rare moons that are all three. Everyone on Nocturne knows them as the twins, but local communities may also name them after a famous pair of twins from their district. The twins are also infamous among those who love a wager. They are often used to settle bets where more binary methods are undesirable. For instance, one could make a wager on the twins, picking either red or blue, then go outside, pull out a telescope, then the bet would be settled on how much each moon was visible compared to the other. Quite often, one could get 30 or 70% of what they wanted by this method, ensuring everyone had something left over so they could play all over again. As such, depending on one's success with the twins, an individual may refer to them with more personal or pejorative nicknames. If one happens across a Nocturnian who declares a lesser-known moon as their favorite, then one could be sure that they were a researcher from the University Celestile, or if their appearance was more on the eccentric side, the Society Royal. One could also be sure that this moon was the most influential moon within their field of study. And then one could also be certain that this moon was responsible for many of that person's best and worst days. And then there are those who enthuse about the jester. The jester does not provide much light to Nocturne and is rather small in comparison to more major moons. 
In fact, the jester's unique property is that it will occasionally change color in a manner that has no connection to anything anywhere happening on Nocturne. The jester is a moon that surely serves no practical purpose whatsoever, other than occasionally looking quite pretty. However, through years of people needing excuses to relax, when the jester changes color, referred to as the turning of the jester, it is celebrated heartily across Nocturne. Most work will cease and, for a few hours, one can celebrate the serendipity of the world with those one loves most, or, failing that, those who one is in close proximity to at the time. Puzzlingly, this means that the Jester is possibly the most popular moon amongst the people of Nocturne, despite not really doing much at all. While Nevin is a Saint Cecilia man through and through, he wasn't one to ignore the call of any moon. So, when the jester turned from a subtle lilac to a brilliant gold the next day, he was summarily coerced towards the Minor Intervals pub by his priestly colleagues after a late meeting with the other lunar clergy around his district. Having just spent the afternoon discussing how to improve things at their churches without covering anything that would improve Nevin's situation, four priests walked into the Minor Intervals pub, sat at a table for four that was too small for four people, then ordered four drinks too large for even eight people. Surrounded by creaking and sticky wooden floors, twisting dark wood beams that cramped their headspace, and the hubbub of other patrons, Nevin's colleague Bryn was setting the pace of the conversation. Bryn was a tuber of a man, in size and in sound. And also, he was the priest of the Obsidian Cathedral. Once a Bryn gains momentum, they can be very difficult to stop. After a brief sip of his beer, Nevin had revealed his frustrations about having no one turn up to his hymnal for many, many months now. And, in response, Bryn had made it quite clear that it was Nevin's job, and his alone, to make it interesting and to bring people back to the hymnal. Uh, I do understand, said Nevin, not really understanding. The Obsidian Cathedral, and pretty much every other place of lunar worship, had the same issues as him. If this is what Bryn tells himself, it's not really working for him either, thought Nevin. He asked the other two priests what they had been doing to bring people back to their hymnals, hoping they had some ideas that didn't get mentioned earlier in the day. Both Gwen and Hugh stared into their half-drunk mugs of Jester's Ruin before speaking up. Gwen had been offering food to worshippers at the Heather Abbey, but no one was really hungry around midnight. Hugh had adopted four cats, thinking they would help draw in more people. They hadn't, but they were good company and managed any mouse issues at Hugh's Alabaster Abbey. After a few months, one particularly prodigious feline could even meow in tune with the hymnal. It all felt so unfair to Nevin. Here we are, taking on all the responsibility, trying our best and not getting anywhere for our efforts. Nevin had to let off some steam. He started by saying, None of us and none of the cardinals have any idea what to do about this, do we? The table was silent. It makes me so, so... He toyed with voicing his true feelings, but settled for an easier one. Discouraged. A moment of silent recognition passed between the priests. Bryn, uncomfortable with such silence, swung a giant arm around Nevin in the manner of someone with more wisdom to impart. His voice boomed, but only to tell Nevin what he already knew again. That the song was important, because it kept the moons mooning, which in turn creates nights like these, thanks to the jester jestering. When Bryn ran out of steam, Gwen chimed in to remind everyone that it also stops any twin asteroids from falling on Nocturne again, and that this was pretty important if they wanted to have more beers together. The nights wore on, and as they drank, their conversation turned to their worshippers. Hugh insisted that people do care about the hymnal. All the people around Alabaster tell him so. It's just that they're too busy to be worshipping at midnight. Everyone works harder these days, and they play harder and sleep harder to make up for it. Gwen agreed, reminding them that she's been the priest at Heather Abbey for 40 years, and that it didn't used to be one priest per place of worship like it is now. 
Even priests are working harder these days. Just then, Gwen's eyes lit up, just before she asked, Does anyone remember when the Lunar Hymna was more than just the solo part for the priest? The rest of the table looked around at one another before Bryn broke another silence. Honestly, I've only ever known singing the hymnal alone. Really? The others nodded. Such a shame. It's really quite lovely. It used to be a lot longer, too, according to the old head of Heather Abbey. Forlorn, Nevin added. I'm not sure I could handle doing more of that song on my own right now. At this point, everyone could see Nevin needed cheering up. Bryn strengthened his grip around Nevin's shoulder. Come nows, all you need to worry about is singing the hymnal every day. It would be grand to have more people join us, but we're doing what we have to right now. Nevin nodded. It was soothing to hear Bryn worried about this too, but Nevin still carried the weight of his worries with him. Thanks, but even if the moons don't need a congregation, I think I do. Just a little. This time, Hugh broke the silence. Hey, if I can train another cat to sing the hymnal, I'll send it your way. You look like you need the help more than me. The table chuckled together, and a small smile returned to Nevin's face. As the laughter died out, Nevin checked in with himself. He wasn't sleepy, but he was tired of being in the bar. Before a new conversation could start, Nevin let the table know he was going to leave now. The others protested, but after reminding them that it's almost time for the hymnal and he has a longer way to cycle than most, they relented. The priests hugged and said their goodbyes. As Nevin started to leave, Bryn even tried to pull him back into the group again with a question about the age of Lavender Minster. It's one of the oldest churches in the city, right? Maybe even the oldest. Determined not to engage, Nevin laughed, waved a final goodbye, then began slinking through the tight gaps between the chairs, tables, and patrons crammed into the bar, all while dodging foot-sized holes in the floor and hole-sized puddles of spilt beer. He reached the exit to the pub, opened the door gently, and closed it noiselessly behind him. The din of libated camaraderie dulled, and his ears relaxed into the quiet of the night. He walked towards his bike and looked up at St. Cecilia, perceiving the craters and crevices on her surface. One crack in particular always caught his eye, one that stretched across a giant crater facing Nocturne. The crack led his gaze further upwards and towards the blanket of stars behind the great moon. Reaching his bike, he swung a leg over it, started turning the pedals, and headed towards the Lavender Minster. His grip on the handlebars numbed a little, as he hit every bump between the cobblestones beneath him, which rattled his spirit all the way back down to the surface of Nocturne. It is well known across Nocturne that singing can create small amounts of light. Truly great performances create significant flashes and sparkles, and particularly dull performances can suck the light right out of a room. 
Despite their frequency, Nocturnians do not really know why or how they appear. Of course, there are theories. Stories about this or that such moon, celestial alignments, parts of the world being more active than others. Some were scared of the lights, not knowing what, if anything, they could do to oneself. But most were just pleased they turned up every now and then and didn't get in the way. This was true for Yuki as much as anyone else on Nocturne, at least until her 18th birthday. On that day, many years ago, she and her father traveled from the Lavender District to the Obsidian District to visit one of the city's most famous music venues, the Supertonic Bar and Bars. Yuki loved music, but she had only ever sung in school with her friends. Just the small songs that children pick up, songs she had heard her father play on his lute, and, of course, the Lunar Hymnal. Now she was old enough to enter the bar, she was finally going to see her first real concert. That evening, at the Supertonic, was going to be extra special too. The aged bard Balthazar had returned from traveling the countrysides and wild regions of Nocturne, bringing with him the songs of those regions, as well as some new perspectives. They entered the bar, and Yuki saved a pair of seats while her father went to buy drinks. He came back with a dark and a light beer, and then gave both to Yuki. Grinning, he said, Try both, and pick your favorite. Yuki tried them both, hating the dark beer a little less than the light one. Seated, they relaxed into the rhythm of the bar, picking out pieces of gossip from overheard conversations in the crowd. Many were surprised Balthazar had made it back from the sliding groves, let alone the mountains around the shimmering peak to the far south of the city, considering his age and all. As more folk filled the bar, the noise of chatter swirled as people shouted over one another again and again, until the clamor hardened into a thick wall of sound. Yuki noticed an old man stepping onto the stage and watched him closely. Everything he did was slow, achingly so. His frail body struggled underneath the heft of his giant instrument case. He made his way to the center of the stage and, gradually, more patrons perceived the presence of the old man. Voice by voice, the room quietened and began to watch as he fiddled with tuning pegs. Then Yuki heard her father whisper, Do you know what instrument he's holding? She looked closely. It seemed like a lute, but there was something odd about it. She watched the old man stand up and unfold an extra neck piece from behind the instrument, making it twice as long as before and started fiddling with the tuning pegs at the peak of his instrument. She didn't know what to make of it, and seeing her confusion, her father said, It's a theobo. Sort of like a lute and a bass in one. Yuki nodded, then waited. The noise in the bar had shrunk to mere murmurs now, and Yuki could hear each string being poured from dissonant to harmonious as he twisted the pegs. Once the final string was set, the old man nodded to himself and spoke to the crowd. I am Balthazar. The crowd clapped and cheered in response, but he motioned with his hand for silence and received it quickly. I have much to show you and precious time to do so. He lowered himself down to his seat and heaved the mighty instrument onto his lap. With zero pageantry, Balthazar began to delicately pluck the strings with his thin and wrinkled fingers. These were old hands, but they were not slow nor rushed. They were deliberate and measured. They were in the right place at the right time, doing exactly what was needed of them before moving on to the next phrase. A relaxed smile washed over his face as melancholic chords and a hopeful melody emanated from his theorbo. Then he sang. His voice weaved through the rumbling bass strings to play harmoniously with melody on the upper strings before floating above them both for brief moments. He sang of spring and the youthful emerald plumage of a sprightly mallard, of a world explored by sky, of companions made then lost to the winds, and of hopeless fleeting love. A full hour passed before he sung of the mallard's thinning feathers 
and its flightless orange feet taking their final steps in the crisp winter snow. As he sang, soft clouds of light billowed behind him. The warm lighting of the bar was steadily saturated with brilliant blue-green hues. These clouds spread across the bar, covering the floors and walls. They became more and more dense as the piece climaxed. Yuki could not see her feet through this mist of color. Then, one discreet cloud emerged from the others, shining a flaming orange before squashing itself into the form of a duck. The duck cloud soared around the room until the final verse, where it landed in the center of the stage before falling to the ground. Its form then faded into the emerald clouds around it, before they themselves faded to reveal the bar much as it was before. Except Balthazar was no longer on the stage. He was no longer in the room at all as far as Yuki could tell, and neither was his Theorbo. Confused, everyone in the bar responded differently. Some clapped, breaking the silence. Others were questioning aloud where the heck he had gone, while the rest, including Yuki, sat awed at what they just experienced. She wanted to know what those lights were, and how to make them happen again and again. The very next day, she begged her father to help her sing so she could make lights of her own. Months and years went by, and the more she practiced, the more she realized how far away she was from what Balthazar could do. She could occasionally produce sparks with her singing, but not much more than that. Even her father, who had played the lute and sung for decades, was not capable of producing even a small fraction of what she saw that night. She asked around the city and attended many shows, just to track down any sign of his whereabouts. Through all her conversations, she heard the same thing. Balthazar was some sort of ghost or phantom. Absolutely impossible to find unless he wanted to find you. It was a dead end for her research, but she did befriend many of the city's bards who could produce more powerful lights than her or her father could. So she studied those instead. Even if those lights were not as fantastical as the lights that evening, they proved to be useful study materials nonetheless. Yuki also proved very useful to the bards. Over time, she recorded the patterns in bardial behavior that made these lights appear as clouds or sparkles. She correlated chords with colors so bards could paint their performances better. For the rest, she had her theories spread across hundreds of weathered black journals laying around her home. With the bards as willing collaborators, she submitted a proposal to the most preeminent scientific body on Nocturne, the Society Royal. The proposal she wrote was short but not succinct, as she had been advised by friends who worked closely with the Society. It read thusly, To whom and or who it may concern, concerning a redoubtable application for resources related to researching residual music reactivities, we are in possession of quite a global ignorance towards the phenomena surrounding light and like-like emittances related to orally originating harmonies, otherwise known as ooze. Ooze are representative of a great unknown with great intellectual boons awaiting those in possession of a full and factual understanding of their occurrence. Having amassed plentiful written accounts of their execution, including pre-, peri-, and post-contextual data of these events, and having retained a grand reticule of those possessing the performative predilection for the production of phosphorescence, I humbly request my own presence at the Society Royal to further eludicate and emancipate the topic of its clandestinity. Please respond with haste, including my room number and budget. I personally request the former to have the minimal number of zeros and the latter to contain the maximum. Steadfastly searching, Yuki Tallo. The letter was followed by 50 signatures from Nocturne's Bardial community proclaiming, This research and Yuki's leadership of it is integral to our community and professions. Please support her and us bards will support you in turn. The Society Royal, famous for their own brand of lackadaisical and Byzantine administration, responded within the week. Dear Tallow, 156, 100, TSR. Confused, Yuki started penning a response that day, but the next day, she received another letter. Tallow, see you tomorrow. TSR.
Song lamps are ubiquitous across Nocturne. They're simple, robust, and, as long as one has a strong voice, they are renewable as well. Once they were invented, they replaced all other forms of lighting as quickly as they could be produced. All but the most traditional of places acquiesced to the concession of convenience. When one spends time with a song lamp, they learn that it is not so simple as singing briefly and then getting a practical reading lamp for the evening. Depending on who, what, when, and how one sings into a song lamp, it will typically radiate light anywhere between a clear Sicilian white and a rusty orange. Particularly skilled vocalists can get a song lamp to produce any color, though it may not last very long. And particularly unskilled singers are lucky to get enough light to help them find a candle instead. The most desirable color for lighting is a warm, slightly yellowish glow. It's stylish and fits into any home. Singers that can produce such light will find steady work refilling song lamps at the business end of the University Celestial. The job requires one to perform for an audience of 30 small metal resonance chambers and serenade them until they emit that warm yellow glow. These would then be delivered around the city, replacing any lamps that were dim or worse. Used lamps are retrieved and brought back to the university to repeat the process all over again. While it is possible and popular to get fresh song lamps delivered every few days, many choose to save money and refill their own song lamps. Oftentimes, the entire district will work together to save money on song lamps by recruiting local singers to walk the streets of their district and, with a trusty stepladder in hand, serenade the local street lamps with whatever song comes to mind. This results in variable light quality from street lamp to street lamp on such streets, but one can be sure that a local community is quite close-knit. It was these variations in light that captivated Nevin as he cycled the final few roads towards the Lavender Minster. When a song lamp shone a brilliant gold, he wondered whether the singer had a particularly uplifting day. When the lamps were dull, he pondered how much admin the singer had to do that day instead. His head would turn and stare at each lamp that caught his eye, then snap back to the light furthest from view to repeat the process all over again. Most of all, he was just impressed that, on this evening, every lamp that he passed was lit. As Nevin reached the entrance to the minster, he was fixated on a particularly orange street lamp to the left of him. He had barely begun to look forwards again before he was surprised to see Yuki standing atop a creaking wooden stepladder, singing gently to the last unlit song lamp just outside the minster. A thin yellow light pulsed lazily from the device and it appeared to only turn the objects around it more yellow without really lighting them much at all. Yuki yawned while half covering her mouth, half waving at Nevin, then trudged down the ladder until she reached the ground a step earlier than planned and stumbled groggily. Well, hello, Yuki. To what do I owe the immeasurable pleasure of your presence so late this evening? These song lamps don't light themselves, you know, said Yuki, causing Nevin to chuckle. You would know best out of all of us, he responded. Nevin's eyes darted back to the sickly song lamp Yuki had just refilled. It wasn't much, but some light was better than none. Nevin asked hopefully, Oh, would you like to join me for the hymnal tonight? Now is an opportune moment to note that it is particularly difficult for the people of Nocturne to lie, and even more difficult for them to get away with it unnoticed. Their sun-starved pale blue skin and faintly luminous blood makes any trace of embarrassment appear as two glowing, celeste-colored cheeks. If one tells a particularly large lie, then one can expect their guilt to be quite clear from 50 feet away in a dark room, of which there are plenty of on Nocturne. Yuki did not want to stay out any longer. She was sleepy, and lighting all the song lamps in the square had taken much longer than expected. Yet, in that moment, just wanting to go home didn't feel like a good enough excuse. So, in its place, she provided the far more acceptable lie. 
Thanks, but I'm quite busy with these song lamps, Nevin. There's more I haven't done just around the corner. Slowly, the growing glow of embarrassment crept over her face. Nevin, with the demeanor of one who has spilt milk and momentarily believes that they can will it back into the bottle, quickly offered, Oh, no, there's, there's no expectation for you to come, but... But Yuki was glowing brighter now. Tension demanded that this situation end as immediately as possible. Yuki obliged with, See you around and have a good hymnal, Nevin, before packing up her stepladder and walking away. Deflated, Nevin wheeled his bicycle into the lobby of the Minster, and upon seeing the empty pews again, he looked up to the vaulted ceilings and his resolve withered. No one was coming. Again. Nevin took many minutes preoccupying his mind. He adjusted some of the pews and set out the collection plates. He straightened some of the candelabras that had started to lean over time. But, unfortunately, when one is presented with an important but daunting problem, especially an issue that they are very attached to, the mind can become prodigiously uncooperative. Yet, when focused on the much more achievable task of avoiding something one dislikes, the mind is a fierce and creative foe, for it knows your weaknesses and it knows how close it is to success. And Nevin's mind knew him very well. Worries that he had meticulously pruned over many years returned to the forefront. Each branch of worry demanding immediate and impossible attention. Worries such as, does this song really work? Does every priest really perform this every day? What happens when they don't or when they're ill? They were unwanted, but not wrong. These worries spelled out how Nevin had felt for many years. That if no one is listening, then he really didn't want to do this anymore. He walked over to the moonlight pool, sat on its lip, and stared upwards towards the top of the octagonal tower. Normally, the deep blues of the stained glass above would calm him, and the mystic purples would brim him with purpose. But there weren't enough colors in the world to distract him anymore. His worries pushed and pulled all of his attention. So much so that when the minor bell of the minster rang, signaling midnight, he was shocked into standing. Instinctually, he focused on that first tone of the hymnal and visualized the vibrations of that first note resonating in his chest. He took a steadying breath, looked out across the empty minster, and... nothing. There was nothing. No hymnal, but also no angry cardinal shouting at him. No blood-red moons and, and no twin asteroids furiously descending towards Nocturne. He let go of his breath and waited, just to be sure he was safe. His ears and eyes became hypersensitive, alert to anything that could reprimand him. He stood in the moonlight pool for many moments before he began to relax, eventually sitting down on the lip of the pool once again. Nevin always believed in the hymnal. He is a lunar priest, after all. But he never really expected to be so important to the world either. He was disappointed nothing bad happened, but happy as well. This unimportance made him feel more free than he could remember, and he began to wonder if perhaps every other day was enough hymnals for now, or maybe only two times a week, or... But Nevin was pulled back into the waking world by the faint sound of the lunar hymnal. It squeezed through small cracks in the silence, barely noticeable but certainly there. He was unable to move. Had he really just heard that? Yes, yes. It was getting louder and louder. He continued to listen, waiting for the source of the song to open up to him. He saw no one. He focused his hearing, but the endless echoes masked exactly where it was coming from. Curiosity eventually overtook his fear. He stood and took some tentative steps towards the pillars lining the west side of the main hall. Rounding the pillar closest to him, he noticed a handful of sparkling dust in the air around him. He paused 
and scrutinized the sparkles as they danced in the air. They were flowing away from a pillar near the entrance. He tiptoed towards them, scared to see what was there, but too invested to leave now. It was right by the last pillar before the entrance, and the sparkling dust was at its most intense. The echoes could no longer mask the source. Whatever it was, was right behind this pillar. He peeked his head around the pillar and flinched upon seeing what was there. There, singing the hymnal, with their eyes closed in concentration, was Yuki. His mind raced through options for how to exit this situation quickly, when Yuki finished singing, opened her eyes, and smirked when she saw Nevin. She said nothing. Am I in trouble? asked Nevin. What on earth for? she said, followed by a flat, empathic smile. It looks like you've got some troubles on your mind, though. Is that right? As she said this, Nevin noticed a small shaft of Sicilian light descending into the moonlight pool across the hall as the diamond sparkles from the song dissipated around him. Nevin, now with his face glowing in embarrassment, smiled sheepishly, then remarked, Well, yes, yes, I think I do.